Okay, great. All right. Well, I was listening to a sermon the other day, and uh, the pastor said, you know, if somebody told him in November of last year that we'd be where we're at right now, he'd be like, you're crazy, right? I mean, all the stuff that we've been thrown into this year has been just a hectic and trying time. Um, And so this sermon today, I titled it Excellent Discernment. And discernment is the idea of examining something and trying to make something that is usually kind of obscure clear. Or we're able to think through, to test, and to examine it. And so, um, and that's part of making decisions, right? We want to be able to discern things, especially from a biblical perspective, to be able to make decisions. And we all know decision-making is a big part of our lives. I've made decisions that have completely transformed my life, changed the trajectory of my life. And so we want to be able to think through what it is that helps us make good decisions and to do that biblically. Um, And one of the things that we need to think through is the current restrictions around how we worship. We're we're worshiping in a very different way than we've ever done before. And so how do we think about that? How do we think through the different government guidelines that are out there, um, certain laws, certain restrictions, certain guidances? How do we think through all of that as Christians and all the other things that are going on around us? And so I want us to, to take one verse, or sorry, one section, uh, what we went through last month, Philippians 1, 1 through 11, and see how that can help guide us through decision-making and discernment. And I believe that's crucial to the office of pastor, because I think that pastors don't just make decisions. Pastor help the congregation make decisions together. Um, and that's one of the things I want to emphasize today. There are two main goals I'm going to try to accomplish today. The first one is to demonstrate from the text why I believe it's important for us to take decision-making pro- the de-decision-making process, discernment process, seriously. Specifically, I want to examine why it's important for us as a body, together, local congregations, to make decisions together. And then the second goal is to use the text to talk about how we make decisions. That is, to examine how it is that we can be excellent at discerning or discernment. Excellent biblical discernment is vitally important in our society today, especially with everything that's going around, everything that's going on, where people have turned away from the church, turned away from the Bible, and turned away from Jesus. So right now we see a complete societal breakdown, right? I mean, some people, and I don't mean to sound morbid, but some people say that America is in its death throes. But we have a God that's in control. We can feel like things are out of control, but we know that ultimately God is in control of everything. So Earl has been uh, going through biblical justice with, in light of everything that's going on, right? We have this movement called Black Lives Matter that is pushing all sorts of agendas. Um, just quickly from their website, regarding LGBT, LGBTQ, which I don't see how that has to do with Black Lives Matter, says, we are guided by the fact that all Black Lives Matter, regardless of actual or perceived sexual gender, sorry, sexual identity, gender identity, gender expression, economic status, ability, disability, religious belief, or disbeliefs, immigration status, or location. We are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. It goes on to say, 
we dismantle the patriarchal practice that requires mothers to work double shifts so that they can mother in private even as they participate in public justice work. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement for supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. We foster a queer-affirming network and we gather, when we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, or rather, the belief that all in the world are heterosexual. And as Earl mentioned before, this group proclaims themselves to be Marxists. There's a lot there to unpack that I'm not going to do. My point is that we have a movement going on, an organized movement that is far beyond police brutality, excessive use of force. It's far beyond rioting and looting. My point is that we have a growing and organized movement that not only want to dismantle America's high ideals, but they want to dismantle God's design for families, for churches, for how we live our lives. Everything is being attacked from George Washington to Jesus, from the Constitution to Scripture. All of this, of course, is smack dab in the middle of a pandemic. We have a global pandemic that has killed over 500,000 people around the globe. We've been in some form of lockdown for since March. And right when things were opening back up, we had riots that made us go back home because of, of curfews. And now we have new restrictions. One such restriction is a restriction on whether or not churches can sing or chant. As Christians, how are we to make sense of all that's going on? How are we to think about it? How are we to discern? What is our worldview analysis in terms of understanding, responding, and making good decisions in light of that? To do that, we will look at Philippians 1, 1 through 11, and we'll examine specifically verses 9 through 11, which is kind of the culmination leading up to, or from, verses 1 through 8. So if you guys will remember uh, the context, right, Peter is in jail, he's in Rome, he's in where, uh, what was called uh, Castra Praetoria, which is basically barracks where the Praetorian guards were staying. And day to day, he's paying rent for his rented quarters, for, for his prison cell, and he's being chained physically to a guard. And in light of that fact, he sends this letter to a church that he planted, and this church in Philippi that he planted, and he talks about how much he loves them, how much he cares about this church, specifically because of their work in the gospel, specifically because they have been propagating the good news and working alongside him to make sure that the gospel continues to be preached. And he thanks God for that, and he's happy despite the fact that he's in jail. And then in verses 9 through 11, everything moves him, right? The, the, the whole first eight verses talk about why he's been praying for them. And then verses 9 through 11 talks about the content of the prayer that he has for them. And so before I start with the, that content, um, look with me at verse 6. Paul states in verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That is the overarching hope of Paul, that what he's praying for them, he knows with confidence that it will happen because the Holy Spirit will make sure that he will perfect what he has started. And so I think for us, we can have that same confidence. We can hold the confidence that the Holy Spirit, God, who has began a good work in us, will perfect it, will help us to see in light of his word, and will one day see perfectly because of what he's doing in our lives. 
And so Paul's prayer for the church in Philippi um, is not for Philippi alone. We know that scripture is written for us as well, and we can be confident that this prayer is also God's prayer for us. So let's start with verse 1 in Philippians. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's prayer, verses 9 through 11, can be broken down in various different ways. For the purpose of today, I want us to see it from three different angles. The first is the desire of Paul's prayer, what his heart is, what his desire is for this church. The second is the outcome of Paul's prayer, right? What happens once this desire is fulfilled? And then lastly, what is the power or the source of Paul's prayer? So we start with the first. What is it that Paul prays for the church in Philippi? What is his desire? We see in verse 9 that he says, and this I pray, right? This is his content, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Paul is saying here that he wants their love, this thing, this love, to increase in a certain way, right? He's not just saying that he wants their love to increase, period, although I'm sure that's what he wants as well. But he's saying specifically he wants their love to, to increase in an aspect, a specific aspect of it. It's like me saying to a college student or me saying to Josh, I hope that your joy this semester, this coming semester, will increase through lifelong friendships, right? That joy is a specific thing, and I want it to increase in a specific way, not all joy when I say that. And so there are a thousand different ways that joys can increase, a thousand different ways that love can increase. Paul's praying for a specific thing. But before we go there, right, we, we want to talk about what love is. Just a quick reminder, what is biblical love? What is this thing that Paul wants to increase? Uh, I think we're, we're used to hearing this, that contemporary love isn't quite what biblical love truly is. And so just a quick examination, we can see that biblical love is demonstrated through actions. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our transgression, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Or in 1 John 3.16, we know love, right? The content love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We see this correlation constantly of love demonstrating itself through action and most definitively through laying down your life and through dying. That is why we know love by Christ's death for us. But here's where it gets interesting, right? Paul says he prays that love may abound still more, may increase in this church through real knowledge and all discernment. This love that demonstrates itself often through laying down your life, this love is also about knowledge. It's about seeing things clearly. And I think that's critical to our understanding of a well-rounded well-rounded biblical understanding of what love is. Love isn't this blind loyalty. Love isn't just blindly dying for someone. It's also about clear-minded, sober thinking. It's about wisdom, right? This word knowledge is used in 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, where he says, Paul says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who, allow, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, It's understanding, true knowledge of the truth. And I think sometimes we can let the world's definition of love skew our thinking. So when we hear a a, a verse or a sentence like, speak the truth in love, we can tend to think that means we need to speak the truth softly so as not to offend or to say something nicely, which may be part of wisdom. But true love is about being grounded in knowledge, grounded in truth. It's about discernment as well. And so discernment is, as I said, the idea of grasping something that is obscure. It's about being able to see something for what it is and saying it for what it is. Paul's desire is for Coast Community Church, that our love may abound still more and more in truth and clear-sightedness as we look at everything that is going on around us today. As we approach the topic of whether or not we should sing, we should ask ourselves, How are we approaching this topic? Are we approaching it from a standpoint of anger, resentment, just not wanting to listen to the government for infringing on our rights, our freedoms, our whatever it is? Or are we approaching it from a standpoint of fear? Are we afraid that the government's going to create greater restrictions? Are we afraid that if we go against the government, they may come in, shut down our church, put us in prison, take us away from our children? Or are we instead coming from a place of love, marked not only by self-giving, but of also being rooted in truth and knowledge and clarity? We must submit to two real authorities. Right On the one hand, we have Romans 13, which says we must submit to our government. But on the other hand, God calls us to sing, to worship, and to praise him. So how do we put those two things together? I believe Paul's example is where we need to start. We need to start with prayer. We need to pray today in our hearts that our love may grow, may abound still more and more in love, in knowledge, in discernment. Specifically, I think that we need to pray for the church, for all the churches around us, all the local congregations making their individual decisions, pray that they will see things with clarity Pray that we'll see things with clarity. So, 
to follow Paul's logic here, we just talked about his desire for this church. His desire is that their love may increase, may abound with knowledge and discernment. He moves on to talk about why we need to grow in knowledge and discernment, right? So specifically, to put it a different way, um, what is the outcome of that growth? What is the outcome of growing in knowledge and discernment? To put it yet another way, why is it important? What's the point? Answering this question, as I stated from the beginning, is one of the main goals I have today. Why is it important to do things like members meetings, to think through things together, right? Why, why should we talk about, why should we even hold a meeting to talk about things like whether or not we should sing? Why do we hold members meetings to elect officials in the church? Why should we hold members meetings to discuss our budget? Why practice the art of discernment individually and together? Well, Paul answers this three ways. So if you look with me at verse 10, Paul says, So that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. And at the end of verse 11, he says, To the glory and praise of God. And so from these verses, I'm going to draw three outcomes. The first is that we can approve the things that are excellent. The second, to achieve greater sanctification. And the third is to glorify and praise God. So the first outcome, like I said, was to approve the things that are excellent. And Paul uses here words that brings to mind a discriminating buyer. So if you ever bought a car or a house, you look at the car, right? But you also compare it to other cars that are similar. You, you compare it, you compare the price, you take it on a test drive. If you're buying a used car, you have somebody that will look at it, right? And like Jim, for example, to, to look at the engine to make sure that it's running well. Or when you buy a house, you hire an inspector. You have people come and look at it. You imagine um, you know, what you're going to do to make it look better. You imagine your kids playing in the backyard. You're basically discriminating, examining, testing to make sure that it's a good investment. That's what Paul is saying here when he says to approve the things that are excellent. It's about critically examining and testing to understand before you make a decision. And that's exactly what we're doing here today. That's that's one of the exercises that we're doing together is to examine something and then make a decision to be excellent or to approve the things that are excellent. The outcome of growing in knowledge and discernment is for us to be able to approve what is excellent in any given situation, right? So we want to discern what's most excellent in our and biblical in the safety of this congregation when it comes to COVID-19 guidelines. We want to do that with everything else as well, right? We want to, we want to think through, should we wear a mask? Should we gather with friends on a regular basis when this is going on? Should How should we think about racial reconciliation, about social justice, about Black Lives Matter, about police reform, about tearing down Confederate statues, tearing down statues of George Washington and Jefferson, defunding the police? All of this is about approving things that are excellent, right? And that requires us to examine and test the issues. As Christians, we are called to be salt and light, and to be salt and light, to be those who preserve and affect the culture around us, we need to know how to approve excellent things. We must examine and think and test because it is important to our mission as Christians, as disciples, and as disciple makers. It's important, it's, sorry, just as importantly is defining what it means to be excellent. What is Paul saying here? What's the definition of excellent? And I think in one sense, Paul's saying moral superiority. That means that we, we make decisions that are righteous, that follow God's laws. 
right? He wants us to approve things that are morally good, that that's obvious to us, right? When we approach an issue and determine how to act, we need to make sure it's in line with what Scripture tells us to do. But there's a second aspect here as well in regards to excellent. And I think what Paul is talking about also is the idea of essential and less essential. That is, the difference between something's intrinsic value, any given topic's intrinsic value, whether or not it's a big issue or whether or not it's a small issue. So we think about quarreling. There are things that we need to stand firm on, things that we say, no, this is an important issue, and if that is the decision, somebody's decision, we, we have to address it. We have to stand firm on where things are. But there are also things where if we disagree with one another, we can let that go. We can still fellowship together, have communion together, hug each other, not physically because of COVID, but we, we need to be able to say we can love this person and spend time with this person, eat with this person, and not bring this up over and over and over when it's not something that's big. And so when we get when we meet today as a members as a, as in the members meeting, we need to think: Is this a big issue? If we don't agree on whether or not we should or should not sing for the time being, is that something that we're not going to go to church, not going to come to this church anymore, not going to be able to let that go? We can and should apply all these issues to how we think, discern, determine anything. That's one of the most important things that is the outcome of growing in knowledge and discernment. The second outcome is achievement of greater sanctification. Right, Paul says, In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. That means to become holier, to become more like Jesus. And this is kind of a future-oriented goal, right? Paul uses the phrase, until the day of Christ. It's looking forward, right? And so the decision-making, that the decision isn't about the decision itself. It's actually also about growing to be more like Jesus. The process of discernment, the process of of making a decision makes us more like Jesus. It sanctifies us. And so it has personal ramification in our lives. That's why it's important to meet together and discern together because it sanctifies us individually, but it also makes us as a body grow more into our head who is Jesus, to be more fitting to be a body of Jesus. And so there's a sanctification process here. There are three ways that we achieve this greater sanctification. The first is that we become more sincere. The second, Paul says, is we become more blameless. And the third is that we become filled with the fruit of righteousness. So the word sincere here can mean pure or lacking mixed motives. And you know that common phrase that what every decision we make, there's a pound of flesh in it, right? And that's true. But at the same time, what Paul is actually saying is we get to shed that pound of flesh as we make decisions that are sincere, that, that, or, that are sincere, that we become more like Jesus, we actually make decisions with less flesh in it because we become more and more like him, right? And so we actually become purer in our motives. Secondly, Paul also states that we will increase in blamelessness. This term describes someone who does not stumble into sin and doesn't cause other people to stumble into sin. And we can see how these two ideas come together when we make discernment, make decisions. We approach our discussion today on the new guidelines and regarding everything, including racial ethics and the other myriad of issues of our time. 
we need to remember that we need to pursue love, which will help us increase in purity, increase in blamelessness. It's an outcome. It's a result. To pray for love to abound with knowledge and discernment, to exercise our ability to approve things that are good, that are excellent, produces the outcome of being more like Jesus, of being pure and blameless. It makes us more like him. And again, when we do that as a body, it makes us all more fitting as a body, together as a unit, to be more like Jesus. Another way in which we achieve greater sanctification is being filled with the fruit of righteousness. This is a common metaphor, having the notes, a list of verses that uses this metaphor of fruit of righteousness. Uh, Just quickly, Psalm 1, for example, compares a person who soaks themselves in the word of God to be a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Or think about our biblical counseling, the three tree model, where bad fruit comes from a tree planted out of a bad heart versus a good heart. We see a similar image in the fruit of the Holy Spirit. For example, in Galatians 5, which is up over there, 22 through 23, it lists joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's an amazing outcome for us. As we practice good discernment, we will increase in in patience, we'll increase in love, we'll increase in joy, we'll increase in peace, we'll increase in goodness, in faithfulness, in gentleness, and in self-control. So we're praying for our church to grow. We want our church to be bigger, be better, be more Christ-like. We need to pray that we will make good decisions corporately because that's an outcome. As we approve the things that are excellent, we are filled with the fruit of righteousness. And that means this church, this body, will grow in righteousness together. We should keep our eyes on that outcome as we think about any societal issue of our time. We need to keep our eyes on that outcome as we make personal decisions, and we need to keep our eyes on that outcome as we meet together for our members' meeting. The third outcome of Paul's prayer is the glory and praise of God, as Paul says at the end of verse 11. This is the most important outcome, right? God gets all the credit, right? We, we may be able to grow, we may be able to make good decisions, but at the end of the day, it is God who gets the praise, who gets the glory, It is God who receives honor. And that is our main aim today. When we come together, both to worship and in our decision-making as a body, our main aim is to glorify God in what we do. That is our goal, our end game, our telos. It's the glory of God. And we should aim that in everything we do, in every discussion we have, whether it's on race, politics, economics, and even entertainment. Every decision we make, what movie we should or should not watch, what game we should or should not play, what book we should or should not read, needs to be aimed towards glorifying God and his mighty name. God rules in every sphere, in every square inch, and it's our job in everything we do to point to Jesus so that people can exalt his name. And that's what we want to do today at Coast Community Church. Well, what is the goal? What is the source and power of Paul's prayer? This is my last goal in this sermon to be able to talk about how it is that we can make good decisions, how it is that we can be excellent in discernment, how it is that we can grow in love. How can we abound more and more in real knowledge and discernment? Well, I suggest here three sources 
but I think they're all ultimately one source. The first is Jesus, right? This one should be obvious to all of us. Paul says, verse 11, which comes through Jesus. He's the source. Without Jesus, we're just sinners running towards the cliff. We're just hellbound. He came to fulfill God's promise to humanity, to Abraham, to Adam, to Eve, to everybody. He is the the pure and sinless man and God who died for our sins and imputes upon us righteousness. He's the king. He's the priest. He's the one who mediates between God and us. And so without Jesus, we have nothing. There's literally nothing we can do. We can't even pray to God because Jesus mediates for us. But with Jesus, we have everything. Because of Jesus, we can fall in our, on our knees and we can talk to God. And that's the second how. That's the second way, the second source. How can we grow in love? By falling on our knees in the name of Jesus and praying to the Father for knowledge and discernment. To pray for love. Pray that we approve the things that are excellent. Pray that we can be sincere and blameless and be filled with that fruit of righteousness to pray for God's name to be glorified. We can be assured of that because of Jesus. We know Jesus is mediating for us and that God will answer our prayers. Paul said in verse 6, as I said, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And then lastly, we have our third source, which is the Holy Spirit as he reveals knowledge to us from his written word. Right? The Bible is our revealed truth. Literally every single word in the original manuscripts are inspired by the Holy Spirit through the agency of human authors. And it is his word to us to know who he is, who we are, and how we are to live in light of that. It is his self-revelation, as Second Timothy three sixteen through seventeen states: All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The source of real knowledge is the Bible, as our Holy Spirit, our God, opens our eyes, illumines our minds, and purify our hearts. The Bible written by the power of the Holy Spirit is our only reliable source of real knowledge. Everything is subsumed under Scripture. To understand the Bible in humble submission to God is to have real knowledge. So our call is to first and foremost, before all else, trust Jesus as our King and as our Savior. Without that, we don't have access to the Father, and we cannot truly understand the Scriptures because we don't have the Holy Spirit. But once we believe and submit to Jesus, when we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we can have access to the Father. We can fall on our knees. We can pray to abound in real knowledge and all discernment and to pour through the Bible as God's holy written word and be able to understand it and apply it. And through that, we're able to love more. Well, that ends my time. So I'm going to end it here and uh, transition to our proposal for the elders meeting. Um, For those of you watching via stream, what we're going to do now is we're going to cut the feed, um, and 
After that, uh, we're going to switch over. I believe uh, Andrew or Mark's going to switch us over so that we're able to do the live stream of the members meeting with the invite. And uh, I'll just close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to gather today, to discern together as a local body, to be able to make decisions together. I pray that as we do that, that our love will abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that we'll be able to approve the things that are excellent, to be able to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus, and to be filled with the fruit of righteousness through Jesus to the praise and glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.